Section 5 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3 Canada and Lord Durham, Part 1. The first disturbance to the quiet and good promise of the new reign came from Canada. The Parliament, which we have described, met for the first time on November 20th, 1837, and was to have been adjourned to February 1st, 1838. But the news which began to arrive from Canada was so alarming that the Ministry were compelled to change their purpose and fix the reassembling of the Houses for January 16th. The disturbances in Canada had already broken out into open rebellion. The condition of Canada was very peculiar. Lower or Eastern Canada was inhabited for the most part by men of French descent who still kept up in the midst of an active and moving civilization most of the principles and usages which belonged to France before the Revolution. Even to this day, after all the changes, political and social, that have taken place, the traveller from Europe sees in many of the towns of Lower Canada an old-fashioned France, such as he had known otherwise only in books that tell of France before eighty-nine. Nor is this only in small sequestered towns and villages which the impulses of modern ways have yet failed to reach. In busy and trading Montreal, with its residents made up of Englishmen, Scotchmen, and Americans, as well as the men of French descent, the visitor is more immediately conscious of the presence of what may be called an old-fashioned Catholicism than he is in Paris or even indeed in Rome. In Quebec, a city which for picturesqueness and beauty of situation is not equalled by Edinburgh or Florence, the curious interest of the place is further increased, the novelty of the sensations it produces in the visitor is made more piquant by the evidences he meets with everywhere through its quaint and steepy streets and under its antiquated archways of the existence of a society which has hardly in france survived the great revolution at the opening of queen victoria's reign the undiluted character of this french medievalism was of course much more remarkable it would doubtless have exhibited itself quietly enough if it were absolutely undiluted lower canada would have dozed away in its sleepy picturesqueness held fast to its ancient ways and allowed a bustling giddy world all alive with commerce and ambition and desire for novelty and the terribly disturbing thing which unresting people called progress to rush on its wild path unheeded but its neighbours and its newer citizens were not disposed to allow lower canada thus to rot itself in ease on the decaying wharfs of the st lawrence and the st charles in the large towns there were active traders from england and other countries who were by no means content to put up with old-world ways and to let the magnificent resources of the place run to waste upper canada on the other hand was all new as to its population and was full of the modern desire for commercial activity upper canada was peopled almost exclusively by inhabitants from great britain scotch settlers with all the energy and push of their country men from the northern province of ireland who might be described as virtually scotch also came there the emigrant from the south of ireland went to the united states because he found there a country more or less hostile to england and because there the catholic church was understood to be flourishing 
the ulsterman went to canada as the scotchman did because he saw the flag of england flying and the principle of religious establishment which he admired at home still recognized it is almost needless to say that englishmen in great numbers were settled there whose chief desire was to make the colony as far as possible a copy of the institutions of england when canada was ceded to england by france as a consequence of the victories of wolfe the population was nearly all in the lower province and therefore was nearly all of french origin since the session the growth of the population of the other province had been surprisingly rapid and had been almost exclusively the growth as we have seen of immigration from great britain one or two of the colonizing states of the european continent and the american republic itself it is easy to see on the very face of things some of the difficulties which must arise in the development of such a system the french of lower canada would regard with almost morbid jealousy any legislation which appeared likely to interfere with their ancient ways and to give any advantage or favour to the populations of british descent the latter would see injustice or feebleness in every measure which did not assist them in developing their more energetic ideas the home government in such a condition of things often has a special trouble with those whom we may call its own people their very loyalty to the institutions of the old country impels them to be unreasonable and exacting it is not easy to make them understand why they should not be at the least encouraged if not indeed actually enabled to carry out boldly all the anglicizing policy which they clearly see is to be for the good of the colony in the end the government has all the difficulty that the mother of a household has when with the best intentions and the most conscientious resolve to act impartially she is called upon to manage her own children and the children of her husband's former marriage every word she says every resolve she is induced to acknowledge is liable to be regarded with jealousy and dissatisfaction on the one side as well as on the other you are doing everything to favour your own children the one set cry out you ought to do something more for your own children is the equally querulous remonstrance of the other it would have been difficult therefore for the home government however wise and far-seeing their policy to make the wheels of any system run smoothly at once in such a colony as canada but their policy certainly does not seem to have been either wise or far-seeing the plan of government adopted looks as if it were especially devised to bring out into sharp relief all the antagonisms that were natural to the existing state of things by an act called the constitution of seventeen ninety one canada was divided into two provinces the upper and the lower each province had a separate system of government consisting of a governor an executive council appointed by the crown and supposed in some way to resemble the privy council of this country a legislative council the members of which were appointed by the crown for life and a representative assembly the members of which were elected for four years at the same time the clergy reserves were established by parliament one-seventh of the waste lands of the colony were set aside for the maintenance of the protestant clergy a fruitful source of disturbance and ill-feeling when the two provinces were divided in seventeen ninety one the intention was that they should remain distinct in fact as well as in name it was hoped that lower canada would remain altogether french 
and that Upper Canada would be exclusively English. Then it was thought that they might be governed on their separate systems as securely and with as little trouble as we now govern the Mauritius on one system and Malta on another. Those who formed such an idea do not seem to have taken any counsel from geography. The one fact that Upper Canada can hardly be said to have any means of communication with Europe and the whole Eastern world, except through Lower Canada, or else through the United States, ought to have settled the question at once. It was in Lower Canada that the greatest difficulties arose. A constant antagonism grew up between the majority of the Legislative Council, who were nominees of the Crown, and the majority of the Representative Assembly, who were elected by the population of the province. The home government encouraged and indeed kept up that most odious and dangerous of all instruments for the supposed management of a colony, a British party, devoted to the so-called interests of the mother country and obedient to the word of command from their masters and patrons at home. The majority in the legislative council constantly thwarted the resolutions of the vast majority of the popular assembly. Disputes arose as to the voting of supplies. The government retained in their service officials whom the representative assembly had condemned, and insisted on the right to pay them their salaries out of certain funds of the colony. The representative assembly took to stopping the supplies, and the government claimed the right to counteract this measure by appropriating to the purpose such public monies as happened to be within their reach at the time. The colony for indeed, on these subjects the population of Lower Canada, right or wrong, was so near to being of one mind that we may take the declarations of public meetings as representing the colony, demanded that the legislative council should be made elective, and that the colonial government should not be allowed to dispose of the monies of the colony at their pleasure. The House of Commons and the government here replied by refusing to listen to the proposal to make the legislative council an elective body and authorizing the provincial government without the consent of the colonial representative to appropriate money in the treasury for the administration of justice and the maintenance of the executive system this was in plain words to announce to the french population who made up the vast majority and whom we had taught to believe in the representative form of government that their wishes would never count for anything, and that the colony was to be ruled solely at the pleasure of the little British party of officials and crown nominees. It is not necessary to suppose that in all these disputes the popular majority were in the right and the officials in the wrong. No one can doubt that there was much bitterness of feeling arising out of the mere differences of race. The French and the English could not be got to blend. In some places, as it was afterwards said in the famous report of Lord Durham, the two sets of colonists never publicly met together except in the jury box, and then only for the obstruction of justice. The British residents complained bitterly of being subject to French law and procedure in so many of their affairs. The tenure of land and many other conditions of the system were antique French, and the French law worked, or rather did not work, in civil affairs side by side with the equally impeded British law in criminal matters. At last, the representative assembly refused to vote any further supplies, or to carry on any further business. They formulated their grievances against the home government. 
their complaints were of arbitrary conduct on the part of the governors intolerable composition of the legislative council which they insisted ought to be elective illegal appropriation of the public money and violent prorogation of the provincial parliament one of the leading men in the movement which afterwards became rebellion in lower canada was mr louis joseph papineau this man had risen to high position by his talents his energy and his undoubtedly honourable character he had represented montreal in the representative assembly of lower canada and he afterwards became speaker of the house he made himself leader of the movement to protest against the policy of the governors and that of the government at home by whom they were sustained he held a series of meetings at some of which undoubtedly rather strong language was used and two frequent and significant appeals were made to the example held out to the population of lower canada by the successful revolt of the united states mr papineau also planned the calling together of a great convention to discuss and proclaim the grievances of the colonies lord gosford the governor began by dismissing several militia officers who had taken part in some of these demonstrations mr papineau himself was an officer of this force then the governor issued warrants for the apprehension of many members of the popular assembly on the charge of high treason some of these at once left the country others against whom warrants were issued were arrested and a sudden resistance was made by their friends and supporters then in the manner familiar to all who have read anything of the history of revolutionary movements the resistance to a capture of prisoners suddenly transformed itself into open rebellion the rebellion was not in a military sense a very great thing at its first outbreak the military authorities were for a moment surprised and the rebels obtained one or two trifling advantages but the commander-in-chief at once showed energy adequate to the occasion and used as it was his duty to do a strong hand in putting the movement down the rebels fought with something like desperation in one or two instances and there was it must be said a good deal of blood shed the disturbance however after a while extended to the upper province upper canada too had its complaints against its governors and the home government and its protest against having its offices all disposed of by a family compact but the rebellious movement does not seem to have taken a genuine hold of the province at any time there was some discontent there was a constant stimulus to excitement kept up from across the american frontier by sympathizers with any republican movement and there were some excitable persons inclined for revolutionary change in the province itself whose zeal caught fire when the flame broke out in lower canada but it seems to have been an exotic movement altogether and so far as its military history is concerned deserves notice chiefly for the chivalrous eccentricity of the plan by which the governor of the province undertook to put it down the governor was the gallant and fanciful soldier and traveller sir francis then major head he who had fought at waterloo and seen much service besides was quietly performing the duties of assistant poor law commissioner for the county of kent when he was summoned in eighteen thirty five at a moment's notice to assume the governorship of upper canada when the rebellion broke out in that province major head proved himself not merely equal to the occasion but boldly superior to it 
he promptly resolved to win a grand moral victory over all rebellion then and for the future he was seized with a desire to show to the whole world how vain it was for any disturber to think of shaking the loyalty of the province under his control he issued to rebellion in general a challenge not unlike that which shakespeare's prince harry offers to the chiefs of the insurrection against henry the fourth he invited it to come on and settle the controversy by a sort of duel he sent all the regular soldiers out of the province to the help of the authorities of lower canada he allowed the rebels to mature their plans in any way they liked he permitted them to choose their own day and hour and when they were ready to begin their assaults on constituted authority he summoned to his side the militia and all the loyal inhabitants and with their help he completely extinguished the rebellion it was but a very trifling affair it went out or collapsed in a moment major head had his desire he showed that rebellion in that province was not a thing serious enough to call for the intervention of regular troops the loyal colonists were for the most part delighted with the spirited conduct of their leader and his new-fashioned way of dealing with rebellion no doubt the moral effect was highly imposing the plan was almost as original as that described in herodotus and introduced into one of massinger's plays when the moral authority of the masters is made to assert itself over the rebellious slaves by the mere exhibition of the symbolic whip but the authorities at home took a somewhat more prosaic view of the policy of sir francis head it was suggested that if the fears of many had been realized and the rebellion had been aided by a large force of sympathizers from the united states the moral authority of canadian loyalty might have stood greatly in need of the material presence of regular troops in the end sir francis head resigned his office his loyalty courage and success were acknowledged by the gift of a baronetcy and he obtained the admiration not merely of those who approved his policy but even of many among those who felt bound to condemn it perhaps it may be mentioned that there were some who persisted to the last in the belief that sir francis head was not by any means so rashly chivalrous as he had allowed himself to be thought and that he had full preparation made if his moral demonstration should fail to supply its place in good time with more commonplace and effective measures the news of the outbreaks in canada created a natural excitement in this country there was a very strong feeling of sympathy among many classes here not indeed with the rebellion but with the colony which complained of what seemed to be genuine and serious grievances public meetings were held at which resolutions were passed ascribing the disturbances in the first place to the refusal of the government of any redress sought for by the colonists mr hume the pioneer of financial reform took the side of the colonists very warmly both in and out of parliament during one of the parliamentary debates on the subject sir robert peel referred to the principal leader of the rebellion in upper canada as a mr mackenzie mr hume resented his way of speaking of a prominent colonist and remarked that there was a mr mackenzie as there might be a sir robert peel and created some amusement by referring to the declarations of lord chatham on the american stamp act which he cited as the opinions of a mr pitt lord john russell on the part of the government introduced a bill to deal with the rebellious province the bill proposed in brief 
to suspend for a time the constitution of lower canada and to send out from this country a governor-general and high commissioner with full powers to deal with the rebellion and to remodel the constitution of both provinces the proposal met with a good deal of opposition at first on very different grounds mr roebuck who was then as it happened out of parliament appeared as the agent and representative of the province of lower canada and demanded to be heard at the bar of both the houses in opposition to the bill after some little demur his demand was granted and he stood at the bar first of the commons and then of the lords and opposed the bill on the ground that it unjustly suspended the constitution of lower canada in consequence of disturbances provoked by the intolerable oppression of the home government a critic of that day remarked that many orators seemed to make it their business to conciliate and propitiate the audience they desired to win over but that mr roebuck seemed from the very first to be determined to set all his hearers against him and his cause mr roebuck's speeches were however exceedingly argumentative and powerful appeals their effect was enhanced by the singularly youthful appearance of the speaker who is described as looking like a boy hardly out of his teens it was evident however that the proposal of the government must in the main be adopted the general opinion of parliament decided not unreasonably that that was not the moment for entering into a consideration of the past policy of the government and that the country could do nothing better just then then send out some man of commanding ability and character to deal with the existing condition of things there was an almost universal admission that the government had found the right man when lord john russell mentioned the name of lord durham lord durham was a man of remarkable character it is a matter of surprise how little his name is thought of by the present generation seeing what a strenuous figure he seemed in the eyes of his contemporaries and how striking a part he played in the politics of a time which has even still some living representatives he belonged to one of the oldest families in england the lamptons had lived on their estate in the north in uninterrupted succession since the conquest the male succession it is stated never was interrupted since the twelfth century they were not however a family of aristocrats their wealth was derived chiefly from coal mines and grew up in later days the property at first and for a long time was of inconsiderable value for more than a century however the lamptons had come to take rank among the gentry of the county and some member of the family had represented the city of durham in the house of commons from seventeen twenty seven until the early death of lord durham's father in december seventeen ninety seven william henry lampton lord durham's father was a staunch whig and had been a friend and associate of fox john george lampton the son was born at lampton castle in april seventeen ninety two before he was quite twenty years of age he made a romantic marriage at gretna green with a lady who died three years after he served for a short time in a regiment of hussars about a year after the death of his first wife he married the eldest daughter of lord grey he was then only twenty-four years of age he had before this been returned to parliament for the county of durham and he soon distinguished himself as a very advanced and energetic reformer while in the commons he seldom addressed the house but when he did speak it was in support of some measure of reform or against what he conceived to be antiquated and illiberal legislation 
he brought out a plan of his own for parliamentary reform in 1821. In 1828 he was raised to the peerage with the title of Baron Durham. When the Ministry of Lord Grey was formed in November 1830, Lord Durham became Lord Privy Seal. He is said to have had an almost complete control over Lord Grey. He had an impassioned and energetic nature, which sometimes drove him into outbreaks of feeling which most of his colleagues dreaded. Various highly colored descriptions of stormy scenes between him and his companions in office are given by writers of the time. Lord Durham, his enemies, and some of his friends said, bullied and browbeat his opponents in the cabinet, and would sometimes hardly allow his father-in-law and official chief a chance of putting in a word on the other side, or in mitigation of his tempestuous mood. He was thorough in his reforming purposes, and would have rushed at radical changes with scanty consideration for the time or for the temper of his opponents. He had very little reverence indeed for what Carlyle calls the majesty of custom. Whatever he wished, he strongly wished. He had no idea of reticence and cared not much for the decorum of office. It is not necessary to believe all the stories told by those who hated and dreaded Lord Durham in order to accept the belief that he really was something of an enfant terrible to the stately Lord Grey, and to the easy-going colleagues who were by no means absolutely eaten up by their zeal for reform. In the powerful speech which he delivered in the House of Lords on the Reform Bill, there is a specimen of his eloquence of denunciation which might well have startled listeners even in those days when the license of speech was often sadly out of proportion with its legalized liberty. Lord Durham was especially roused to anger by some observations made in the debate of a previous night by the Bishop of Exeter. He described the prelate's speech as an exhibition of coarse and virulent infective, malignant and false insinuation, the grossest perversions of historical facts decked out with all the choicest flowers of pamphleteering slang. He was called to order for these words, and a peer moved that they be taken down. Lord Durham was by no means dismayed. He coolly declared that he did not mean to defend his language as the most elegant or graceful, but that it exactly conveyed the ideas regarding the bishop which he meant to express, that he believed the bishop's speech to contain insinuations which were as false as scandalous, that he had said so, that he now begged leave to repeat the words, and that he paused to give any noble lord who thought fit an opportunity of taking them down. No one, however, seemed disposed to encounter any farther this impassioned adversary, and when he had had his say, Lord Durham became somewhat mollified, and endeavoured to soften the pain of the impression he had made. He begged the House of Lords to make some allowances for him, if he spoke too warmly, for, as he said with much pathetic force, his mind had lately been tortured by domestic loss. He thus alluded, to the recent death of his eldest son, a beautiful boy, says a writer of some years ago, whose features will live forever in the well-known picture by Lawrence. End of section 5